Since returning from our vacation in Arizona, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. Not the model prayer he used to teach us to pray, but the one he actually prayed for himself, for his apostles, and for us. It's the prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and it's the longest prayer of Jesus that we find in the Bible. In the first part of his prayer, Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed that he would have the courage to follow through on the plan he and the Father had laid out even before they created us, a plan to redeem us and give us the opportunity to come back into relationship with them, knowing that we would have to experiment with sin before understanding the harm it would cause. In the second part of his prayer, Jesus prayed for his apostles. He prayed that after his death, the Father would keep them together, give them joy, protect them from evil, and sanctify them as vessels of truth. In the final part of his prayer, Jesus prayed specifically for us, for the church. He prayed for those who would become his followers through the word of the apostles, those who would hear it directly from them, and those who would read it as the word of God down through the ages. And that, of course, includes us. Shortly before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for unity, glory, and love in the church. Let's examine that final portion of our Lord's Prayer this morning and see if his prayer is being answered. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Now, I trust you've noticed the formality that I've used in Jesus' prayer, particularly the these and thous. Last week, Erica asked me why I use them, noting that even the new American Standard Version doesn't. What she didn't know is that the old new American Standard that I've used in my sermons for 50 years does keep the these and thous in prayers, and that's why I use them. And I do have to admit the old traditional part of me still kind of likes them. Anyway, back to the prayer. Jesus began his prayer for the church by praying for the unity of all 
believers. He prayed that all who would believe in him through the apostles' teaching would be one, that the church would be united. I'm sure you realize the church hasn't done a good job answering that prayer. According to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, there were 43,000 Christian denominations in 2012. That was up from 500 in 1800 and 39,000 in 2008. They estimate the number is expected to grow to 55,000 by 2025 because a new denomination is being formed every 10 and a half hours. That's 2.3 new denominations or groups that identify themselves as a unique part of the body a day. Obviously, we're not doing very well. Now, if the differences were simply expressions of preference with regard to style of worship, doctrinal emphasis, or organizational structure, it probably wouldn't be much of an issue. You know, we can all be one without being identical. But if our divisions are caused by competing and condemning attitudes toward one another, we do have a problem. And we're not doing what Jesus prayed we'd do. Sadly, even attempts to do away with divisions in the church have resulted in more divisions. We don't talk about it much, but our religious heritage has roots in the Restoration Movement. It was a movement began in the 19th century as an attempt to break down the dividing walls between denominations and restore simple New Testament Christianity. It was thought that without creeds and statements of faith that tend to polarize believers, we could all become one. It started well, but the movement soon splintered into competing groups that not only led to more divisions in the church, but has become what some apparently call a seventh branch of Christianity. That's something I just discovered this week. While looking for some current stats on the number of denominations, the following popped up in large print. Christianity is divided between Eastern and Western theology. In these two divisions, there are six branches, Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Oriental Orthodoxy, and Assyrians. Restorationism is sometimes considered the seventh branch. That kind of shocked me. But in spite of that, I do believe the historic plea for restoration and unity is valid. And occasionally attempts are made to bring churches together, but gains are usually small and division continues to grow. Now, I do feel that some divisions are justified, especially those due to the abandonment of clearly revealed biblical truth and the acceptance of woke cultural beliefs. But most, at least on a congregational level, are the result of differences of opinion and personality conflicts. 
And even if congregations don't split over such things, far too many individuals and groups within a church leave because of them. Sadly, we've even experienced some of that over the years. Now, I'm sure Jesus knew all this would happen. Yet he did pray that the church would be one. And we must not ignore his heartfelt desire for the church. We may not be able to do much about the state of the church around the world, but we must always strive to maintain unity within our own church family. And Jesus' prayer has within it the elements that can make that possible. You know, Jesus prayed that the apostles would be sanctified in truth and then prayed for those who would come to believe in him through their word. And it is the word of the apostles that provides the foundation for unity. If we would stay focused on their word, which, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the very word of God, and less on societal opinions, we would know what to do to fulfill Jesus' prayer for us. We would know what is important to him and could then surrender our will and our opinions to his. Now, admittedly, just knowing his will doesn't mean we'll do it, but it's obviously a place to start. Furthermore, Jesus didn't just share with us the basis of unity. He modeled it for us and made it possible for us to actually be one. Jesus lived his life in perfect unity with his Father, in perfect harmony with his Father's will. To see Jesus was to see his Father. To hear Jesus was to hear the Father's voice. They were, in fact, one. Jesus was actually God in the flesh. And as such, the glory of God resided in him. So he demonstrated the glory of his Father to us. But he also did something else. He gave that glory to us so we could demonstrate it. When Jesus rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven, he made it possible for his spirit to actually take up residence in our flesh, for him to dwell within us and make us one with him. And he will do that. If we are willing to be cleansed of sin, invite him in and surrender to his will. That means it is possible for us to experience that same glory, the same unity with God that was shared between the Father and Son while Jesus was on earth. And if we'll all share that unity with God, guess what? We are united with each other. We may express our love for God in different ways. We may emphasize one of his teachings more than another. We may even disagree in our understanding of God's will on a particular issue. But if we are one with God, 
we are one with each other. If we have entered into a personal relationship with God, we have entered into a personal relationship with everyone else who has a personal relationship with God. I believe the truth of that can be well illustrated in marriage. When you find the one that you've decided to spend your life with and make binding vows to do so, you are marrying more than just the one with whom you will become one flesh. You are marrying into a family. Your better half's parents, siblings, aunts, crazy uncles, and cousins have become your family, whether you thought about that or not. Now, There may be times when we wish we could deny the familial ties that came with marriage. And there may be times when we don't act like family. But our relationship with our mate ties us to a larger family, whether we like it or not. Even if we think we have nothing in common with our extended family, we do. We have a common link through the one We married. The same is true in the family of God. If we are related to God, we are related to each other. If Christ is my Savior and He is your Savior, we are in the same family, the same church. We may have a different address, Worship in a different building and practice different traditions, but we are still in the same church. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner the world will believe that God sent Jesus into the world to save us and that there is a God in heaven who loves us and makes it possible for us to love each other. Jesus' prayer for the church began with a prayer for the unity that comes through a commitment to the Word of God and through experiencing the glory of His presence in our life. He then prayed that we would not only experience the glory of His presence in our life today, but that we would behold His glory in the future. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. When Jesus arose, there was no one there behold his glory. He was alone in a sealed tomb. He simply arose and left behind his grave clothes. The earth did quake at that moment as it had at the moment of his death. And when an angel appeared and rolled away the stone, the soldiers shook for fear of him and became like dead men. 
no one actually witnessed the momentary glory of the resurrection. I doubt that anyone could have survived it. That's not to suggest there were no witnesses to his glory while he was on earth. It was witnessed by shepherds when a multitude of heavenly hosts sang at his birth. It was witnessed by those at the river at his baptism when the Spirit of God descended upon him and God declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it was witnessed by apostles at his transfiguration when his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. In his prayer, Jesus had already spoken of his glory or of being glorified during his time on earth. He spoke of his hour to be glorified, referring to the crucifixion, the moment when the entire world would be able to see the length to which God was willing to go to express love to mankind. He spoke of having glorified his father on earth, doing the work that his father had sent him to do. He spoke of the glory that the apostles brought to him through their faithfulness to him. He spoke of the glory of being one with the Father and the possibility of our sharing that glory through his presence in our life. Now he speaks of the glory that would be his when he returns to heaven. And he speaks of it as if it has already happened. He speaks of the glory given to him by his Father because he loved him before the foundation of the world. And he includes us in that aspect of his prayer. He prays that we will behold the glory he's always had in heaven. And do note that we're not just going to be spectators of his glory in heaven. He's already made us participants in the glory that the Father gave to him. And he did so by making us one with him and the Father. He has made it possible for us to share in the glory he shares with his Father here and now. And it's his prayer that we share that glory for all eternity. Indeed, our ultimate glory will be revealed when we stand together in his presence, seeing him in all his glory, knowing that he is our Savior, knowing that he loved us enough to leave the glories of heaven to die for us so we could share his glory forever. Now, if the promise of that glory doesn't motivate us to work harder at experiencing the oneness with him and with each other, surely nothing will. And if I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus with you, I might as well start loving you now. The last words of Jesus' prayer express his desire for us to experience that love. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them and will make it known 
that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. We live in a world that does not know God because the God of this world has blinded it to the love of God. Jesus came to earth to reveal God and his love And he did so in a way that no one can seriously question. He died for us. John expressed this beautifully in the third chapter of his gospel, John 3, 16. Please say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that. We understand it. We've embraced it. Jesus came to share with us the love of God. And in doing so, he has enabled us to know God intimately. Jesus said he has made God's name known to us. That means he revealed to us the character, the heart of God. Jesus shared God's love with us. And if we've truly experienced God's love, there is no way we can keep from sharing it with others. That's the easiest part of Jesus' prayer answer. You know, we must strive for unity in the church. When facing death and the struggles of life, it's not easy to remember the glory that will be ours when we see Jesus. But surely we can share with others the love that God has shown to us. When we celebrate the death burial, and resurrection of Christ, we're celebrating his love for us. And we are committing ourselves to love others as he has loved us. If the risen Lord lives in us, we can certainly love each other. Without a doubt, Christ the Lord is risen today. Let's stand together.